Good morning, Tom, and welcome. Thank you very much for coming into the safe place. Um, morning, Kevin. Morning. So, little introduction. Uh, you are a solicitor, uh, a business owner, um, a musician, <laughs> um, also involved in in um, in the kind of green energy. You're, green energy. You've, yeah. you've got your own studio. Children's, uh, children's care as well. Yeah. Children's care, yeah. you know, a kind of a wealth of different different businesses and 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 structures. Um, let's start off with kind of where you've kind of come from, and then we'll kind of work our way through all those different different businesses. So, tell us a little bit about where you started. Um, so, so probably music uh, first, wouldn't it? Yeah, so music, actually. I was going to start with, with my legal process there and, and sort of how I became a solicitor and so on. But, it, you know, you're right, it, it came from music initially. Um, so probably about when I was 15, 16, I uh, moved to Merseyside. Um, and I just wanted to start a band and make it a racket, like an absolute racket. You know, it made no sense to anyone. Um, somehow we managed to get a record deal sort of by the time I was 17 or something. And, um, you know, I mean, it was a... It was a I guess, a, a glimpse of what could have been because, you know, we sort of, you know, played a few shows and it was all very quick. Next minute we're yeah. on a, a label, next minute we're touring. And then we released an album, which was a complete flop. Um, it is uh, found in the Asda bargain bin nowadays, I believe. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're lucky if it hits 99 pence. Um, but um, it gave me a taste of, of, of what was to be. And it also gave me a bit of a bit of resource to to get myself to university. But, you know, the the, um, the problem was I prioritized music over my A-levels. I didn't have yeah. the best A-levels. Um, I had, you know, quite good GCSEs. I'd, I'd done quite good at GCSE. Um, but um, I was a bit younger than most going to university, didn't have good grades. Um, my friends had, had said to me, um, you know, sort of, uh, what, what do you want to do um, at university and what do you like? And I said, oh, I'm, not, I'm not going to university. I said, okay, what do you like on TV? I said, oh, well, I like CSI and uh, crime. And they said, oh, there's this degree here, you know, criminology. You can do that. You can do that. Yeah. So, you know, we'll sign you up. So they filled out my UCAS forms and so on. They sent them off. Um, and somehow I was accepted to the University of Liverpool to do, to do criminology. Um, mixed with sociology, it was a, a sort of a combined bachelor's. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I did that for three years. Um, I sort of, um, yeah, I mean, criminology, it's, I, I found myself in the third year asking, what does a criminologist actually do? Um, I, I didn't actually know, you know, at that age, I was, I was very young, I must have been about 20. I was still doing music, but it was, you know, the album hadn't done great just as I started university and it's sort of, you know, less and less shows because I was sort of juggling between yeah. um juggling between um, various things, really, you know, um, obviously uh, doing my um, studies as well as trying to do shows and trying to tour, you know, just wasn't wasn't feasible. So in the last year, I, I really bonded with a, a lecturer um, and he was he was just a really smart guy. And I realized like he had a lot to say, quite an elderly guy, been a professor at Liverpool for a long time. Um, but he was also interested in music. And um, so we'd meet up regularly about my dissertation. I just decided, right, I'm, I'm really going to smash this dissertation. I don't know what it was, but I just put everything into it. And we had loads of discussions about Tracy Chapman and stuff. And that's how he yeah. used to weave um, lyrics about um, domestic violence and about things things like that into into sort of, um, you know, from sociology, from criminology. Um, but he'd link them with music and he'd say, use your music knowledge to, um, you know, to sort of um, write this dissertation and, um, you know, look at Tracy Chapman's lyrics and I'd read through them. Um, and I'd quote them in the dissertation and stuff. And eventually, I mean, I, I got 2-1, you know, it wasn't a first or anything. But that at that point, I was thinking, you know, 
God, music's, music's taught me a lot. You know, like I'm able to use this piece of music to relate it to an academic dissertation. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that was really the start of realizing that music had really set me up for a lot. Okay, you know, my, my album hadn't done great, but I'd, I'd already seen the majority of the UK. I'd never left the UK by that point to, to do any international shows or anything. But it was more dealing with contracts, um, you know, sort of thinking about things, reflecting on, on, you know, sort of and creating, you know, like working on something and creating um, something which was a, a product um, that, you know, I guess it, it sort of, um, you know, very, very few people learn that at that age. You know, at 17, most people are, you know, um, Get drunk. Know, discover, yeah, getting drunk, partying. And, and, you know, I was too young to get into the bars and I was, I was at university. So I'd, I'd be sort of just studying, um, working on my music in the background, sending emails, you know, as a, as a young, a young man, um, to, you know, to record label executives or to managers. And then obviously I'm bonding the two because, you know, by my third year in university, I'm writing a dissertation, which is based on, you know, sociology, criminology, and it's also linking back to music as well. So I think that's probably the first time that the, the link between my academic, um, pursuits and my creative pursuits were fully, you know, fully linked and fully formed, but they'd always been there. So, you know, if you look at sort of my, my background in music, when I started, when I was 15, um, I, by that point, I've got two, three years experience of, um, you know, business, um, and selling something, which is a grudge purchase, you know, which is, is music, you know, people, um, what made you go into music? So when you were 15, what was it that kind of pulled you in that dark? Cause it's, it's kind of death metal esque. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a very heavy music. Um, yeah. and I think, to be honest, um, it's a strange one. I mean, I, I, um, I can't say I listen to a lot of that music. Um, you know, I've always had a very diverse musical taste. You know, everything from dance to hip hop, yeah, uh, drum and bass, punk, metal, indie. I listen to anything. Um, I just it was the people I was surrounded by, and what I found in um, alternative music and metal was the people really, really good people. They had a lot of integrity about them. Um, they were a sort of a an excluded part of society where you know a lot of them looked different, a lot of them had different yeah. interests. They were you know, you know, a different sort of um, I guess you know uh, dietary interests. You know, whether it's veganism or vegetarianism. Some of them were straight edge, so you know they didn't smoke, they didn't drink. Um, then you had these other, you know, mixed in with them. You had people who drunk far too much and, and smoked far too much, you know. So, but they were all in the same group. And and what what I think um, drew me to it was the fact that anything went, um, you know, anything anything you know, you could be whoever you wanted, um, and they didn't care. So, you know, I went in as as you know, I was involved in music as as um, a young lad, long hair type thing. I mean, which I'd grown because my friends had you know long hair and stuff, and. Um, and just uh, you know, being being accepted by them, and and to this day, I, I still talk to one of the first people I met when I moved to Liverpool. Um, you know, he's he's still into punk and stuff, but he did a long time in drum and bass. Um, and you know, we're we're just uh, you know still can talk like we could talk when we were fifteen. Um, so I think that's it. It's just acceptance, and that's what drew me drew me to it because I'd always been a bit of an outsider. Um, I wasn't yeah. a cool kid at school. I wasn't, you know, um, I was I was mostly bullied to be honest. But um, you know, I had grown up in little little. Um, rural villages where I was, I was a target, yeah. you know, especially in, in rural Scotland where I'd grown up. So, um, you know, um, that, that was something where, you know, you're in a village of maybe 10,000 people living there, um, in total. Um, and you know, they've never seen a, an Iranian in their, in their life. And, you know, my, my, my heritage is, is sort of mixed Iranian. So, um, you know, they'd, they'd never met an Iranian person. They didn't know where Iran was. Um, so to, to sort of go to a rural village, I became a target instantly. And I was, you know, I was, I was, I was an outsider until, until I moved to Merseyside where there was a lot more culture. 
Um, and people didn't, you know, race didn't come into it then. And they were just sort of um, accepting of anything. I, I could have had, you know, I could have been or had been anyone um, as long as I was cool to be around and, um, you know, a laugh. And as long as we worked together and hung out together. And um, I think that's where it started. So um, that sort of drove my interest in music. It wasn't the music that drove the interest. It, it was the, the fact that I had all these friends in, in music um, who, you know, they say, oh, check out this band. And, and it wasn't just metal. It was, it was every type of music, you know, like I said, um, Mike, the first person I met when I moved to my Merseyside, he, he showed me, um, you know, punk. He was really into pop punk, um, things like, you know, uh, Blink-182 or yeah. Green Day or No Effects and things. So, um, so we started sharing records and I remember he'd copy CDs and he said, listen to this, listen to that. And then I'd get more into it. And then yeah. I'd sort of find bands and I'd give him CDs. So it was, it was, um, it was companionship. That's what, that's what drew me to music. It was the scene and the, the, uh, collective um collective um nature of music i guess and i mean you're, you're not someone that sounds scottish so no, how, no. how long were you up in up in scotland for? i was probably about there i think probably probably there about eight years um um and you know it's i did have a i had a scottish accent when i when i sort of moved down initially it sort yeah. of disappeared over over the years but i'd, I'd moved from england in the first place so i'd moved from yeah, okay. uh, birmingham to uh, the place i grew up was in the burvey really a far far northeast oh. corner of scotland yeah. about 30 miles from aberdeen a tiny yeah. little village um and uh, you know obviously when i moved back down I, I had a bit of a scottish twang to my to my accent but um yeah like i said it, it just disappeared over the years I mean, I, I ask because when when I moved from Scotland, so I was five. I was born in Scotland, moved down from Scotland, and I've been in England ever since. Um, but I had the kind of um, eastern. It was Dun, Dundee, so a really kind of soft eastern eastern Scots accent. Actually, a really sweet accent. Um, but that was one of the things that the kind of people that then ended up being my bullies as through my um through my childhood really that's one of the things that they kind of picked up on straight away was yeah. was that difference so i guess that where where you then got the reverse of that and found that group probably has more of an impact because you've actually got that acceptance from well, that, that's it, because you strive for so long for that acceptance, especially when you're living in somewhere, you know, that's quite rural or they've, you know, they they, they don't, you know, at that point, they've not met many English people. You know, some of these little towns yeah. in Scotland, they've not many met many English people. They've certainly not met many Iranian people. Um, so, you know, you, you're striving for acceptance and you want to be part of, you know, some sort of group, but there's a limited selection of people because, you know, they've mostly never left the town they were born in and so on. Um, and that's nothing against them. You know, it's just a case of they, they've lived a, you know, very sort of a different life to to what I'd, I'd lived growing up in cities in, in England. Um, so to move back down as a teenager and be immediately accepted by this sort of bohemian collective of, um, I can't, you know, some with pink hair, some with mohawks, yeah. some with piercings, you know. Um, and they were just like, you know, you can be anyone, Tom, you know. And, and that's, that's roughly... Um, when I decided, I, I think I met a guy called Paul in, in Liverpool. Um, I used to play guitar um, and uh, I went to meet him and I sat in the music shop and, and he was just immediately better than me on guitar, but he didn't own a guitar. So I was like, oh my God, I've been at this for like four or five years and this guy's just picked up a guitar and he's better than me. So I really, you know, I was, I was a bit disappointed. I was thinking, you know, God, he's nat so naturally talented, but that's what you found in this collective. There were people that were, you know, so naturally talented and just so special so gifted type thing. So Paul, Paul encouraged me. He said, you know, 
we still want you, you know, to make music together, Tom. But I just, I couldn't keep up on guitar. I couldn't keep my timing like he could or anything. So that's when he said, oh, you know, why don't you try for, for vocals? I was like, no, I could never do that. Um, and I remember the moment I was, I was walking home from school one day um, and I got in and my parents were out. So I was like, I'm going to record this, this, these vocals, you know, and it honestly sounded like, you know, some sort of demon. Um, Cause you know, I was like a teenager. I was, I was pretty annoyed and so on. Yeah. And um, I'd recorded thing and I played it to Paul and I played it on the phone. Um, I played it down the phone to him and he went, who's that? And I said, that that's me, Paul. I've, I've given it a go. And you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really cool, you know, but like, um, do you like it? And he was like, yeah, you could do the vocals now. So, um, so that, that's how it started. And that's how I got into, um, you know, I guess metal extreme. I, I don't know what, what you want to call it, but, um, for me, it was just an alternate vocal style. I, I learned how to do something with my voice and I just practiced and practiced and practiced it. And I mean, before it came to fruition, it was probably about, you know, a good 10 years before I actually got you know quite good at it. And people yeah. started saying, you know, I was then a sort of respected vocalist in, in that scene, but, um, that's how it all started by Paul being better than me on guitar, really. And, and me striving, pushing myself to be like, right, I have to do something because, you know, I've been <laughs> accepted into this group now. So Can't I don't want to be out. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't want to be on the outside again, you know? Um, so, and, and to this day, again, me, me and Paul will still, still talk, you know, he was, he was touring with his band, um, maybe a month ago and I think we got stranded in Germany somewhere and I dropped him an email. I said, look, you know, um, it, I, I know some people, you know, let me know what's wrong with the, the bus and, you know, I might know someone who can come out and meet you or some, you know, come and try and get you from A to B. So yeah. um, we've remained, remained uh, friends ever since, really. That's good. It's not often you hear of of kind of story, stories like that where, particularly when you've met at a slightly older age that you're then keeping in touch with. I mean, I've got friends that I've known pretty much my whole life and I will know, I'm sure, for the rest of my life. But I don't have many from that kind of, slightly older um age group probably because i already had that collective of, yeah. of kind of friends there i think i've got it's like quite, a, a selection really yeah it is unique it is unique I, I say it's um you know i i, I try my friends are the most important thing to me I, I say you know sort of um around you know other than my family you know but it's yeah. it's a case of um you know i've always valued them because my only child so you know having friends isn't but i think from each era um I've, I've picked, you know, a, a few, a few friends who I've stayed in touch with and yeah. for, for really valid reasons, um, you know, I'll, I'll always, um, you know, help them and they'll always help me. And it's always been very mutual. And, you know, there's, there's one guy who I talked to still from Scotland. Um, and I, I'll always, I'll always hold him in a, in a, in a really sort of a, you know, on a, on a podium basically, because when yeah. I was really excluded, he was, he was so talented at football and so cool, you know, every kid wants to, but he'd always sort of, you know, he'd always step in for me to help me, even though I was I was terrible at football. Um, but he'd take me to the park and he'd be like, look, Tom, this is how you take a penalty. And God, I mean, you know, watching me take a penalty must have been terrible and watching me do free kicks must have been terrible. But, you know, he'd never let anyone pick on me and so on. He really stood up for me. And, and you know, nowadays I still still talk to him. So he's from that era, you know, pre-15, you know. Um, and then a lot of people have, have dropped away and so on. But there's, you know, then obviously when I moved to England, I've stayed in touch with people. There's people from my legal career I've stayed in touch with. And each each time I've, you know, it's it's made for a really diverse collective of friends who, you know, at this point I've I've got, you know, if any given interest or having given given problem, there is someone somewhere um involved in in that, you know, and I'll, they'll yeah. be able to help me. Which is which is a credit to yourself. I would say, but it's also credit to them, you know, because they're, yeah. they're, you know, it's that mutual friendship. It's mutual. That's what it mm. is, you know. And uh, you know, I'm there for them, and they are there for me. Um, yeah. You know, in your darkest hour and in your best hour, you know, and that's and that's the the meaning of friendship for me. 
I was going to say it's that's a proper relationship, and that's what friendship is. It's a relationship between two two people that's platonic. Um, and it's about it's about respect, and it's about sort it's, of you know treating well, treating people yeah. how you'd like yeah. to be treated, being there for them when they are there for you, and I guess a degree of loyalty, you know, for for sort of making sure that you you know you've always got their back, and they, you you know they've always got yours. Yeah, definitely. So you've you've kind of gone through uni, you've come out with a two one. What 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 came next for you? Figuring out what a criminologist did. <laughs> I was kind of thinking, I've got this degree now. I've written this yeah. great dissertation, but what do I actually do? So um, I went and volunteered um, for a little bit at the Youth Offending Service. Um, okay. And it was just down the road in, in Wigan. So Wigan is... Um, it's an interesting place. It's uh, you know quite quite small, but a lot of a lot of crime back then, and the youth offending team were really short of of uh, people, but mainly mentors. Um, my friend Rachel, who uh, had dragged me through my degree, um, she said, "Look, we should go and volunteer." So every week we'd uh, we'd we'd go and volunteer, um, and we volunteer. We do like two or three days initially, and then it's sort of once we'd done our training and we complete the training, it was like once a week, something like that. Um, so we we kept on the we kept kept on sort of going to the center, did our training and things. And um, I mean, Rach did to me what, what she normally does. She, she signs me up for something. She she um, develops an interest in it. She gets accred- accreditations and so on. And then she sort of drops back and she'll go and do something else. But um, I sort of, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm quite committed when I get into something. So yeah. um, I started, um, I started going quite regularly. I do this weekly thing. And I met a, a young lad who was, um, uh, a kid called Daniel. Um, he was 14 at the time. Um, and bearing in mind, I'd have been about, 20 21 um and he was uh he was his problem was stealing cars and i didn't really understand how the youth offending service worked at that point um i I just i'd just been assigned this young boy who every saturday i'd go and pick him up and we'd do something like go-karting or we'd go bowling or and really i'd just talk to him about sort of like i'm talking to you now i talked to him about life um, yeah. At that age, and I'd say, "Look, Daniel, you know this is what you want to do," and and he'd go, "Oh well, you know, um, I'm not sure I'm into that." I'd say, "What you've been doing this week, Daniel?" I'd say, "Oh, I've been twacking," and I was like, "Oh, what's what's twacking?" He said, "Taking without owner's consent," and I was like, "Right, okay, that's a that's a um, an eye opener." And I say, "How how many times have you done that whilst you're sitting in my in my car and we're going down the road?" <laughs> um, and he's uh, he's saying, "Oh well, you know, about 27 times this month." I'm thinking, ah. wow, wow, 27 cars and you're only 14 in, in a month. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty high-end stuff. And, you know, that kid, for now, in, in hindsight, I realise he's quite a dangerous young man. You know, he's, he's, he's robbing people, he's stealing cars, he's breaking and entering. Um, but then I also got a glimpse of his family life and it, it, it paired my sociology and criminology really together. Um, but also it brought into action my business, my business brain. Cause I was thinking, well, how can I make him more productive and how can I sort of make him see that, you know, there's a way of having the same enjoyment and the same Patrick's reward without, yeah, that's exactly. Great, exactly. If he stays on the right path, cause you know, this lad is 14 at the time. If he doesn't get out of this, he's going to prison. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, well, so we started going go-karting because, uh, his, yeah, I mean, that, that's it. His, uh, his, I mean, he'd been referred to the, the youth defending service at that time and, and what they, what they do really, it's sort of like a, a stopgap for, for kids. Right. Um, it's like, I guess, probation for kids in a way or something like that it kind of keeps them on keeps them on the tiptoes and what at that point the crown prosecution service are weighing up whether this child is going to be an absolute pain and needs to learn a lesson yeah needs to you know needs a custodial sentence or needs to go to a youth vending institute needs to go to a secure institute um or whether they're capable of change 
And what I saw with Daniel was, you know, he'd come out of the house and his, his mother would be still screaming at him whilst he's walking to the car. And I thought, God, this poor kid, you know, he's been like every day must deal with this. I'm stealing, I'm dealing with him on a Saturday. Yeah. Well, you know, that's his happiest day of the week. What's his Tuesday like? What's his Wednesday like? Um, and over time, he just got more and more into the go-karting to the point he was so good. He'd be like lapping me. And I'd be like, but that, that was, it gave him the same kick as a police chase. Um, you know, going around yeah. the go-kart track. But the thing is, no one's getting hurt and there's no risk to him. You know, he's got a helmet on, he's got safety gear on. And eventually he joined a go-karting team. Um, and I saw just the change in his personality and he moved away from that friendship group. And, you know, it, it just sort of that, that sort of, um, I think it joined everything together because I understood the sociology of it, where he'd come from, where his values had come from, where his, you know, his daily experience, I understand his criminality, you know, yeah. the thrill of him taking cars and the respect he got from his peers. I understood the business mentality of it because he was getting money for these car parts and for the cars that he was taking. Um, but I also understood that if you put the same determination and same focus like I had done into music and studies, then he could use that set. You know, he was far more talented than me at 14. Because, you know, I, I didn't know how to drive. I didn't know how to take a, a car. I mean, you know, you think of it as criminality, but it takes a lot of cognitive ability. So, um, you know, so if you put that to good use, he could become someone, um, you know, sort of um, a bit, a bit um, you know, he could, be, he could be, sorry, he could become someone um, a bit, um, you know, a bit with a, somewhat, somewhat a more productive, a, a contributing member of society. And, you know, he yeah. could achieve a lot more for himself. So, um, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So that's, that's what he could become. And when I saw that potential, I thought, you know, um, that, that it was a really rewarding time for me because I've seen this kid, you know, become something. And I was thinking, God, he's gone from bad to good. Everyone's happy, you know, um, and he's not going to realize the impact it's had on his life, um, you know, until he's 20, you know, but I'll always remember the impact that, you know, the decisions he's made have had on his life because it could have gone the other way and it didn't. Mm. So I, I kind of took that with me. Um, but it was a short stay, you know, um, I think the, the sort of youth offending thing probably lasted about a year um, after, after the year. Um, I thought, right, what am I going to do now? You know, they weren't paying me. I was a volunteer. Yeah. Um, so I ended up, um, I think at that, at that point, I must have been 21, something like that. Um, ended up, um, again, um, Rachel, the, 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 the friend of mine who'd, who had uh, gone to university with me, um, she said, oh, you know, there's this degree and, you know, we can become lawyers in a year, Tom. All we have to do is do this conversion course and it'll be, yeah. it'll be dead easy, you know, and then, you know, they get these massive salaries. And again, me being gullible me at the time, I was, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds great, Rachel. Um, the first day they gave us 27 books. Um, I had a suitcase with wheels on. It was that heavy to bring back. Um, but at that point, you know, I'd put everything I had into, into the you know, the fees, um, mm. to get to law school, this course was, you know, it was an extortionate cost. Um, everything I had from music, I borrowed from my parents. I'd taken a student loan, um, you know, that I'd sort of saved about three, four grand of, and I put it all into this, uh, conversion course where you could convert a degree into a law degree. Um, so I, I, I gave it my all and, you know, I really, really, really determined, um, you know, my, my approach to it was, um, you know, it was, I didn't leave the house for a year and a half, you know, um, I just post it everywhere. Um, I knew yeah. the judges' comments. I knew, um, you know, every case law that you know that, that was out. I, I knew every case that was out there, and I, I, my exam, my exams were, you know, way excessive. You know, um, I mean, I think I think that was an interesting one because I, I learned so much about law, um, read every chapter of every book. Yeah. Um, but when it came to the exams, again, it was a two-one. 
because I couldn't really apply. Like what they were looking for was just a tick box exercise. And I was giving them the judges, you know, comments um, outside the case, you know, the obiter comments that were, you know, this, and I'd be giving them the conclusion. I'd be saying this judge said that. And then this judge said that. And really, it was far too analytical for them, I think. You know, they just wanted someone who understood the law. So there were a lot yeah. of people on, on that course who they were out, you know, partying most nights and uh, they still managed to get first. Um, I was there till 3 a.m. in the morning in complete silence. I'd have um, earplugs in and I have headphones over those earplugs just to get me in the right mindset. Three in the morning reading books on trusts and equity and, you know, debt finance or anything like that. Um and, uh, you know, I mean, anyone who knew me back then would, particularly Rachel, would 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 look at me going, are you insane? You know, you're you're in the library at 3am. And I, I, was, I was saying, no, I've, I've got to do this, you know. I've got to prove that I, I can do it to myself. And I think it became acceptance again. It became about acceptance. Um, you know, I'd gone from uh, law. Um, sorry, I'd gone from, uh, you know, into, into law. I'd gone from music. Um, I'd gone into law. Um, I'd completed my sociology degree, you know, as a student, just an average student. But to go into law, you know, you're dealing with the people who have... Um, They've got different backgrounds. A lot of them have different backgrounds, you know, and they'll, they'll um, you know, they'll never know what it's like to be excluded from something. A lot of them, are, you know, some of them, some of them, you know, that's that's not a sort of a generalization or whichever. Um, but it's it's law as a profession has a bit of a chip on its shoulder. Um, yeah. And I was I was different, you know, um, uh, sort of I already had by that age, I already had tattoos and, and things. So I used to hide them. I'd already, I, you know, I'd cut my hair because I wanted to blend in. Um and there was a there was a guy I met there at, at law school who really really had a profound impact on me. A guy called George, and he, he's he's since deceased, unfortunately, but um, he passed away in, in two thousand and fourteen. Um, but um, he he really again he was a bit like David when I was a child. You know the, the the guy who would teach me to take the penalty kicks and didn't care who picked on me, but he he would always be there for me. Um, George was a you know he um, he he didn't drink. He was a devout Jewish. Um, really religious, really, you know, he played sports all the time, um, pro, semi-professional basketball, um, very clever guy, um, and sort of, you know, just seemed to have it all going for him, super popular, everyone wanted to know George. Um, but George wanted to know me, which was really interesting because he just sort of, um, you know, he'd say, oh, Tom, you know, all these people would be like, oh, you know, what are you doing for lunch? And he'd be like, Tom, do you want to do you want to go for lunch? And I'd be like, why? Why is this guy want to get to know me? Um, but he take me to the Chinese buffet, and we'd you know we just it was our in thing, you know, like our in joke. We'd just go yeah. there on lunchtime and just you know smash the buffet. Um, both go back to lessons like you know properly bloated. Um, but you <laughs> know had a, had a yeah yeah exactly yeah just uh, yeah just all, all the chemicals in those in the, in the buffet food probably uh, just you know made us more alert, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, so I, I think going to law school, I'd only got through it. Um, I mean, again, R Rachel sort of, uh, she sort of drifted in her second year, I think, when we were doing the LPC. And George became, you know, sort of more of a, a companion for me and a guy called Alex, yeah. who I still talk to to this day as well. Um, and, uh, you know, they sort of got me through it. They dragged me through it. Um, but I think I think the one thing that I did, which other people didn't do at law school, was really, really study the books. Um, you know, I just read every page there was. Um, it wasn't reflected in my exam results, but it was reflected in my legal knowledge. Um, so after after that, I uh, again I was I was at a bit of a loose end. I mean, I think they say something like five percent of law graduates end up with a training contract, which is what you need to become a solicitor. 
really competitive. I've been to all these interviews with, uh, you know, sort of something like 200 and something applications I've made and maybe had, say, 10, 10 interviews off the back of it. But there were ones where I was going to firms like, you know, Fisher Meredith, for example, at the time. I think that's what they were called. And I, I didn't have a suit that fitted because, you know, I just didn't have the resources to buy a suit. So I'd wore my dad's suit. The problem was he was you know, about double the size. So, you know, I, I was I was like drowning in this suit. And, and they sort of said, you know, after round one, which was in the morning, I was up against all these super smart people who were just able to tick all the boxes. So I said, oh, you know, you've, you've not made it to the second, um, you know, the second half of the interview. And I mean, they didn't even give you lunch. It was like, you know, your first half was over. If you didn't yeah. make the second half, you were, you were done before lunch. Yeah. Um, so I was at a real loose end. I thought, God, here I am again. I'm not being accepted. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to tick all these boxes. I'm never going to get in. Um, so I thought, what, what can I do? What am I good at? Well, you know, music. I, was, I, was, I had a good background in music. That's what got me to law school. Um, I'd learned to appreciate all the lessons I'd learned in music and about, about the business. So I formed another band started doing what I was good at. And, uh, you know, within probably about six months or something, that band had a bit of traction. And for the next 10, 15 years, it took me everywhere from, um, you know, Australia, Japan, America, um, all around Europe, around the UK. And I'd, I'd never left the UK previously with music, but um, going everywhere and dealing with all the promoters and dealing with all the contracts and dealing with all the deposits and dealing with all the press, um, and I guess, you know, just sort of proper business, um, you know, it sort of, uh, yeah, it just got, um, I guess, more and more serious um, to the point, you know, you'd be sort of paying for buses and it'd be, you know, 10 grand for the bus in a month. And obviously you'd be, you know, you'd have to gamble that. Yeah. So that's, if that's all you have and you're gambling it on one tour, if that tour flops um, and you don't do well, just like my album flopped when I was 17, if that happens, you're bowled out, you know, that's it, game over. Um. I mean, I was very fortunate because there was a guy called Andy who I'd met um, and he was quite a bit older than me. So I must have been 23 by this time and he was 32. Um, we are still the best of friends now and he's, he's heading to his 46th birthday this year um, and, and I'm heading towards my 38th. Um, you know, so it's we've uh, we've sort of always remained in contact. Um, now, Andy's a, Andy's a really interesting friend of mine, you know, but he helped. I mean, for, for a start, he's... He, he helped me a great deal. He guided me a great deal. Um, but he's also one of the best musicians, the best songwriters I've, I've ever met in my life. Um, and to see someone who's that naturally talented, he has a hearing, a hearing deficiency. So he was, he was born with, um, you know, I would say at best 70% hearing, um, at aged, age 45, we're talking 35%, you know, it's, it's yeah. halved, it's halved again type thing. So, you know, he, he really struggles. Um, but he's so intelligent you know, and I will always speak, you know, very highly of him because he taught me, um, he took everything I had, all the raw ingredients. And he said, right, this guy's creative. Um, you know, he's got a law degree. Um, so he knows about, about business. He's got music experience. Um, so I'm just going to listen to him. And that's, that's, that's what Andy sort of did. And he just listened to all these mad ideas and put them all together into a, into a creative band that, you know, people were really intrigued by. Um, and like I said, it, it went, it went all around the world. Now, I mean, Andy reached an age, similarly to what I am now, uh, 38, 39. And he sort of said in 2015, you know, I can't do it anymore, Tom, you know, it's too, too stressful. How he put up with it till, till that age, I'll never know. And again, I still admire him for it because I think, you know, he, to, to go that long, he was doing 30 day tours aged 38, 39 with a group of um, mid twenties um, guys who were interested in just, you know, 
living the life, being on tour, playing to the big crowds and so on. And all he was interested in, all he's interested to this day is creating music. Um, Fortunately, a lot of the music he and I wrote in the early days, and that's what carried the band for the next 15 years. Um, But alongside that 15 years, um, I think because Andy had sort of glued everything, glued all these raw ingredients together, um, that was was sort of the recipe and my career sort of started to develop and everything else started to develop around it. Um, and it was all these raw ingredients that I had from my childhood and all this sort of, you know, determination to be, you know, sort of, I guess, um, accepted or approved of and things that kind of went away because, um, you know, when I realized I can create my own boxes to tick, um, I don't need to be ticking anyone else's boxes. That's when it just, the, the two just moved in a completely different direction. Um, and what I was doing with music was completely different from what people expected me to do or people, what people, what was around at the time or what people were expecting from me. And then I just did this. I applied that 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 template to everything for, you know, to to my legal career, to business, to anything I wanted to do. I was just like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make the rules. I'm going to make the boundaries and I'm going to create my own boxes and I'm going to I'm going to make my own tick list. And that's actually far more interesting than, um, you know, subscribing to someone else's tick list and trying to be accepted by others. Um, so at that, at that point, I became sort of a, you know, a bit of a, I guess, a you know, a a one man, a one man band, essentially, you know, sort of creating my own, my own path, um, which was cobbled together out of all these like experiences I had. Um, so, you know, obviously then I, w- I went into my training contract, but that was a, a total, you know, uh, just a curveball. I, I, I shouldn't have got a training contract. I, I trained at a firm called Han Co in central London. They'd been, um, they'd been a firm for about a hundred years. Um, it was really, really interesting. They called me up when I was in Czech Republic with with Andy, and um, we're playing shows. And they sort of said, uh, you know, we've had the uh, we've had the, the uh, opportunity for a, a training contract come up. Someone's dropped out. You applied six months ago. Uh, can you get down here for your start date? It'll be in two weeks if if you want it. And I turned to Andy and I just said, look, you know, like uh, they've given me this opportunity. I have to move, you know, from from Merseyside to London. Um, can I, you know? Do you think it's a good idea? And he said, you've you've absolutely got to grab it with both hands. Um, which I did. So, you know, he actually helped me pack all my stuff and, and move. Um, I thought um, London was much like Liverpool, I guess. And, um, you know, I went down there and, and picked a house in, in near Gatwick. And I thought that was like London. Um, so I was, I was I was traveling all the way from Gatwick every day on the train. And you're sort of like pressed against the window of the train because there's that many people on it. And yeah. it, was, it wasn't the most, you know, it wasn't the happiest experience of my life living in London. It was too busy for me. And a lot of the sort of... Um, the hustle and bustle and the, the rat race of it all. Um, but I used to say, I, I just, I just thought like people down there were, were um, again, they were, they were all ticking an existing list of, of tick boxes just to get through it. And, and when I walked in, I saw, I saw the firm and I saw the state it was in and sort of the marketing and the image and sort of the legal practice that they were doing. The legal practice was actually very good, you know, sort of second to none. They had some of the most experienced solicitors in there. Um, who had practiced for 40 plus years. I mean, one of them in there had practically invented legal aid. He was that experienced, you know? Um, but um, they were sort of a bit a bit stagnant, you know? It was the, the font was, you know, very old. The logo was very old. The offices were very old. Yeah. Um, things like, you know, they weren't involved in many charities or their sort of online presence was really limited. So as soon as I started um, say, I guess I said, I always say I said the, the, the wrong thing at the right time, perhaps, or something. Um, but these partners, they just all turned to me at the same time, went, what did you just say? And I sort of said, you know, repeated, you know, I think, I think this would be a great strap line um, for your logo. Um, and the strap line was excellence in practice. Um, and I'd come up with it whilst walking home from the office one day. Um, I just thought, you know, that's what you need. You need a strap line 
to to sell how good you are, you know, at, at law and stuff. And it and they just said, right, you know, Tom knows how to do this. And I thought, do I? I don't really know how to do it. Um, I, I just, you know, it was a creative idea that had probably very similar to, you know, music and so on. But the more the partners welcomed me, um, they started, you know, having meetings and, and I'd be, there'd be six equity partners and there'd be a junior trainee solicitor who'd finish opening the post and then go to a meeting with the equity partners. It was, you know, parallels. So, um, yeah, it was just, what do you call it? Um, op- opposite, sorry. The DM, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd do my post and I'd do all this admin duty and then I'd be going to this really senior meeting about the running of the firm and the financials of the firm and, you know, sort of um, the future of the firm, the, you know, interior design, what we were doing with charities, what we were doing with um, corporate department that we'd started and banking department, um, what the property practice was like, who we knew with the banks and things. And, you know, and and the more, I mean, the firm grew significantly um, and it became a modern law firm. So, and I had the opportunity as a, a newly qualified solicitor or, a, well, a trainee um, at the time to, um, you know, to change an entire firm that had been in business for a hundred years and change the culture. Um, I mean, for, for, there were a lot of people who got the backs up. You know, they didn't like the change. Yeah, they, always... they wanted to tick the box. They wanted to keep on ticking the existing boxes. And yeah. I sort of said, you know, if if that keeps happening, this firm is not going to be able to compete with these other firms who are growing. Um, now, my sole interest at that point was, I've got this opportunity, grabbing it with both hands. I am finishing it. You know, if I do two years here and I don't finish and qualify as a solicitor, you know, they have to let me go or something. Um, I'm going to be destroyed. You know, I'm, I've moved yeah. to London. I don't know anyone here and so on. Um, so that's essentially what I did. I just grabbed it with both hands and started helping them as much as I can to redesign things and so on. Yeah, it did get did get people's backs up. Um, but when I qualified, they appointed me as sort of a practice manager role. Um, my role was to develop the practice and manage and oversee everything, you know, from the IT guys and the IT sort of, um, you know, tech, te- the technology we had in the firm and the infrastructure, um, all the way to events like, you know, charity um, events where we'd sort of have sponsored raffles and sponsored auctions and stuff like that. Um, I think I think what what um, it was all creative and it was all very good for business, but my, my legal practice wasn't wasn't there. So um I think in 2013, that's when I moved, sorry, 2012 it was when I moved to Hawkins Hatton. Yeah. Um, again, another spontaneous move, someone who'd said, you know, your, your legal practice suffering there. Um, and again, it was jumping at the deep end. Um, and, and uh, you know, like when I told you, uh, you know, I was told by one of the partners, look, unless you can do this in a month, you're no use to me. Now, having moved all my life to the Midlands, no friends, no relatives there, um, it was sink or swim again. And it was yeah. like, God, I, I can't, if this opportunity goes, I'm, I'm back to ground level. So I then had to grab that with both hands. Um, and before you knew it, thanks to the, the help of, of two, two sort of paralegals who were very junior at the time, um, Steph and Jem, they sort of talked me through it um, and, and helped me, you know, and uh, they helped me, um, they helped me learn um, how to do it. And again, I, I sort of grabbed it with both hands and just um, before you knew it, I was, my legal practice was as good as my business practice and my creativity um, and I think that was probably the final sort of, perhaps the final, final raw ingredient that I needed to sort of glue it all together. Um, yeah. Probably that that time in my life, it was a real struggle, um, you know, sort of living in Birmingham and not knowing every uh, anyone, um, and you know, just sort of against this, uh, I guess, against a lot of pressure, you know, on my shoulders. Um, and then I, I think after that, it was. Um, well, it, it was the, the final piece. I think was taking it all and putting a very commercial spin on it. Um, and the way I did that was at Hawkins Hatton, um, which was the, the firm that I'd moved to. 
I met a girl called Karen who was, she worked there for no longer than two weeks, um, something like that. Um, and uh, she said, oh, Tom, you know, you should you should um, try and get a job in the Northwest, you know, if you're not happy in Birmingham. And I said, well, you know, oh, they've got these recruiters, they send them to the interviews again. And I said, have you tried looking in the paper? Sometimes you just find, you know, firms there. So I picked up this paper and there was a, there was a job um, that was uh, working in renewable energy. That's what it said anyway. And it was with uh, two two guys who were directors of a company. They'd started it in, in Burska, which is about, I'm going to say, five miles from my parents' house maximum. So I said, right, I'm, I'm heading back there. Um, my partner was already back up north and she'd been there for a good year and a half or something like that. Um, She's working really, really hard towards her nursing at the time. Um, and uh, I, met the, I met these two guys. I went for the interview and uh, they sort of said, um, you know, so... Um, you'll be doing this, working on these solar solar and renewables and wind and biomass and these technologies I knew nothing about. I mean, I barely knew how to change a light bulb. And this, and this is the time before people had really gotten into that market as well. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty, people were doing the rooftop stuff with solar, but big yeah. turbines weren't everywhere. You know, you didn't see them in the sea. Um, yeah. You definitely didn't see anaerobic digestion plants or anything like that, which yeah. are acres of land and solar fields, which are, you know, 150 acres of just panels and yeah. generating huge amounts of electricity. So I had to learn all that um, again, very, very quickly. Um, but uh, I think what was more surprising is, um, you know, I'd gone from l- a law firm where you turn up on your first day and you're in a tie, you're in a suit, you've got your computer, you've got your log on sorted, you've got your ID pass, every door sort of, you know, swipe in, swipe out. Yeah. Um, to a business where I'd, I'd sat there on my first day, there was no, there was a makeshift desk, there was no computer there, um, there was no legal resources at all. I hadn't even seen the files. I'd, I'd asked to see them, um, but they were with another firm at the, at the time, and they'd hide it in house. So they're bringing me in house, and and it was just, um, I mean, I can only describe it as three to three years of chaos. Um, I, I learned it very, very quickly. So I'd be staying in the office till three or four in the morning just to learn how these, again, needing to know everything. You know, I need to know not just the legal practice, but how these actual, the solar farms worked um, and how wind turbines worked and how energy develop, generation worked. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just read loads about it and just um, tried to draw diagrams of basically, I mean, energy when it comes down to it, everything to everything save for solar um, seems to turn a turbine. You know, if you're if you're heating gases it's turning a turbine if you're burning coal it's turning a turbine wind it's a turbine um and that just it's like a motor it just generates electricity the more it goes around with its momentum so um so i just started studying it and simplifying in my head um and by sort of 2014 2015 the industry was attracting a lot of investors um and those investors um as well as the directors of the company um they all taught me to get all these raw ingredients and stitch them all together and put a really, I guess, a, a sort of um, a commercial gloss on it. A really, a really sort of, um, you know, just a, a sort of a, an appetite, getting, getting, getting the job done, getting business done. You know, you'd go into the meetings, you'd be out type thing. And it was all, it wasn't, you didn't have to be polite anymore. You didn't have to sort of um, t- tick other people's boxes or whichever, like I was doing in the legal profession, because I was now in-house. It's like working for, you know, any other company it's like working for a uh, an ice cream company or something like that and it was very small there was you know there was yeah. maybe 20 employees or something like that so um you know the business began to, i think when when I actually joined it was about five and by 2014 um, i think we we're at 20 by 2015 we must have been about 40 employees something like that um and we were all working around the clock it, it felt like what i'd read about in the you know the 80s and 90s and the way business worked 
Um, and they were just getting deals done. You know, you saw seven million pound being moved on the back of a receipt. There were no contracts. And I, as a lawyer, I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, is this going to be on me? But you know, if they lost or if they won, it'd be, you know, big parties, big office parties. Um, I teach, I'm teaching them about the red tape of law and stuff. And the more I'm hearing myself explain this red tape, I'm like, this is just, this is just nonsense. You know, we just need to get the deal done. Um, and before, you know, I had my own trainees under me training to be solicitors. Um, I had two of them. I had a, you know, a department of, of more qualified solicitors than, than I was, you know, I was at this point, maximum two years, two and a half years qualified. And I had solicitors mm. under me who were eight to 13 years qualified. Um, and, uh, slowly, you know, I guess, um, whatever I was saying, um, much like when I was at Han Co, the directors seemed to listen and they involved, the, they evolved their business, but also the investors listened. Um, and they, I think they had a great deal of, of sort of respect for me. I've, I've, you know, at the time I didn't appreciate it, but cause I didn't really, I didn't really grasp sort of, you know, how much they were listening to me. But over the years, some of those investors, um, they absolutely changed my life, you know, and, and very, very successful people, you know, um, again, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but in hindsight, you know, some of them have done huge developments and, you know, one of them had a Guinness world record for hedge fund trading. And, you know, you think, how do you, how do you, um, you know, how do you reach that point in life where you're just, yeah. um, you know, the, the top of your profession, the top of what you do, you're the best of the best in the whole world. Um, so to sit, you know, to sit down and have dinner with those people, you know, I mean, I always considered myself having a varied life and, you know, all these bits and pieces put together, but to hear their stories and to listen to them, um, you know, it just really sort of um, opened opened my mind to, you know, anything's possible. Anything is possible at that point. So, what and I had all the raw ingredients to do it. What, if you kind of reduced it down to, say, three kind of main things or even one main thing that you learned from that period, what, what do you think it would be? Well, I think it, it pushed me harder than ever um, because in music, yeah, you, you're on the road um, for, you know, say, 100 shows or whichever and you feel like roadkill at the end um but you know you're still getting you're still looking after yourself um you know you're still getting fed because you have your rider and you have your food when you show up and so on um you've got your friends around you when you're in the office at 5 a.m in the morning um and you've just got off a flight from hamburg the previous day and you've been basically been awake for two days and all you've eaten is you know a, a bowl of pasta um, and you're really not looking after yourself at all. And you're just running on absolutely empty. And these investors are calling the office, calling, calling the office home, uh, the office phone, sorry, at, at 3 a.m. in the morning to check you're still there um, and you're know, working on the deal. And you're like, you know, it pushed me harder than ever. Um, but then the incentive was there as well. Um, an incentive which didn't really materialize because I did all this work. And at the end of it, they sort of said, sorry, Tom, that bonus we talked about, it's not really happening. Um, you know, so, they, they, you know, I learned a lot from that as well. Um, I think it taught me, um, you know, sort of, the, I guess, I guess that, so, you know, determination and focus and uh, my ability to learn, um, my ability to be creative because some of these, um, renewable energy plants that we were developing uh, with agricultural land, it's never been developed before. So you have a lot of issues. You'll have like fishing rights from the local guy who likes yeah. to fish and that'll tie up the land because you can't have a solar site that's generating, you know, kicking out a, a high voltage. Um, and then you've got, you know, the local fisherman and his mates who want to go down by the river and walk through the entire solar, solar site to get there, um, risking life and limb. Um, so you have to, to reach a deal with them. So it also, I think the commercial gloss that they put on my skill set meant that I could go and sit with these people, the local fishermen in rural Wales, um, and sort of sit with them and say, you know, right, what, what deal is going to make you happy? 
you know, what deal is, do we have to come, do we have to go and buy you another river? So we'll go and buy you a river and we'll give you the right. Um, you learn about species, you know, relocating skylarks or crested newts and rehoming them. And you've, you've no idea how stubborn a, cr- a crested newt is until you try to move one. Um, I didn't know what one was, but, you know, they keep going back. And you're like, but we've, we've developed this whole paradise for you in the next field. You just have to migrate there. So a lot of creativity and reaching the deal, reaching deals with the planners to say, you know, 150 acres, but it'll create these jobs, we'll donate to the local school, it'll benefit the world generally. Um, the thing about renewable energy is everyone wants it. Everyone understands it's required um, because of the the sort of, um, I guess, climate crisis. No one yeah. wants it next to their house yeah, because not, no one wants a... Yeah, not in my backyard. And that's that's um, that's what I had to deal with. So dealing with um, you know a lot of the, the neighbours and things, it, it required a real commercial gloss to make sure they were all happy. And that's what I became very good at. So everyone left happy. Um, if there was a solar farm where the, you know, the residents of that village were just saying, absolutely no, we're not convinced. Well, again, you know, like I had that determined approach where I take it to a point, but there was also a lot of integrity there, which, you know, I'd learned from my background in music and my back, my friendship circle growing up. Um, and also, uh, you know, sticking my head out the crowd and being sort of like, no, this isn't right. So I go to the investors, go to the directors and say, we're not doing that one because it isn't right. You know, they don't want it in their village and nothing I say, um, you know, nothing I offer them. And I'm not just going to sell them um, whatever. So, so they, so they sort of buy into it. You yeah. know, I, you know, I want them to really, um, you know, I actually really want, you know, if we, if we're offering them something, um, either they want it for the village and they see the benefits and they see the bigger picture or they don't, they just want life as is um, and we move on. So I think sticking my head up, obviously, you know, the investors and the the sort of directors were all about business. It was quite ruthless. Um, so to see that I wouldn't do that, um, the directors, they didn't respect it massively. They sort of like, just whatever, you know, get it done, Tom. But the investors, they understood. And I think that was what took me up from the, the level of dealing with um, the directors to dealing with the investors, because the investors did have a conscience. They were very good at what they did. Um, that's not to say the directors didn't, but it was just um, they were they were still developing themselves. They didn't have the hundreds of millions in the bank and so yeah. on. Um, and I think bridging the gap for me, I was thinking, how do you become how do you get to that point of becoming a director? Um, and how do you leap to where these investors are? Um, you know, there's a massive gap. And what what's in that gap? It's just a big question mark. Um, and I think it, I think it's integrity um, and commitment to what what you do um, and doing things for the right reasons, which is what the investors were doing. They weren't doing it; they didn't need the money. It was a case of yes, they want to return, you know, they want to return on their investment, but they weren't desperate. They're not going to starve; it doesn't happen. So there was a level of I was sort of stuck stuck between the two, you know, because if if it didn't happen, I might starve. Um, but at the same time, what was more important, you know, damaging people's lives and the lives of their children by building, you know, wind turbines all around their house um, or or um, sort of, a, 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 you know, um, just doing the right thing, sticking my head up and saying, no, this one isn't happening. We can't do it. We can't reach a deal. Um, let's move on. And we did, you know, and I think we probably connected about 100 megawatts of, of uh, different renewable energy technologies across the UK. So it was ranged from hydro. Um, which is, you know, rivers and uh, turning turbines um, to solar plants um, where it was, you know, panels for miles. Um, And you'd never, I mean, there's hundreds of these in the UK and you'd you'd never spot them. They're so well hidden. And a lot of those were were done by me because, you know, I I did want to make sure it was completely out of sight. You know, you wouldn't want to drive through a town and you're driving through a town and it's a case of, uh, you know, you're driving past two miles of solar farms before you reach the local village shop. Um, It's just going to ruin the town. So a lot of them were very hidden, the ones we did do. Um, unfortunately, in in 2015, stroke 2016, the this you know the renewables bubble just popped, 
um, and the subsidies stopped and construction costs were so high, um, it just sort of left the company high and dry. Um, and I mean, it, yeah, it was, a, it was a real interesting time because music was more serious than ever. I just got back from a tour in the US where I'd been gone for a month. Um, it was the second time tour in the US. I'd come back to essentially um, no job and a locked office and uh, an office where the lights had been turned off. And I thought, isn't this ironic? You know, I've, I've, felt, I've spent the last three, four years trying to keep the lights on um, and now everything's off and everything's gone. You know, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't even have a car at that point. They'd, they'd taken the company car. Everything was gone. So um, I think it was on the third day of that tour that I got a, a notice from uh, some liquidators just saying the company's been wound up. And I was like, whoa, you know, complete. I, when I get back in 27 days, I've, I've got no job, no income. Um, now, I mean, what what happened before before that? Um, I'd actually met two partners, uh, Sarah and Daryl, Daryl Cook, um, Sarah Sarah Goldburn. They'd um, they'd uh, they started a law firm called Gunner Cook. Um, it, was, yeah. it was based out of Manchester, and I met Sarah. Um, and she reminded me of my mum. She was a you know she was a, an age where you know she just wasn't like every commercial lawyer I'd, I'd met. She was she was quite humble and she was really like down to earth and dead mumsy you know, really, really mumsy and stuff. But she hadn't met me in a, an office. She'd met me in a hotel in Chester. Um, and I sort of said, so, you know, what's the pay, Sarah? You know, what, what do you guys pay at the firm? She said, well, we don't. It's a, it's a, you know, basically we give you a share of what you bill. And I thought, ooh, this isn't going to be good. How am I going to survive? Because I've worked in-house for three years. Um, how am I going to get an income? Um, well, at that time, I thought um, it must have been Christmas 2015, um, so I thought I'll sign up for that. Um, I'm in house still at the same time. It hasn't gone bump yet. Um, so I'll sign up for it. I'll do a few jobs with my boss's permission. Um, I'll do them with insurance because obviously that's what Gunner Cook had. There was probably about, I reckon, under 15 lawyers. Um, didn't really have a massive office or anything. I think they were borrowing space off another law firm at the time. Um, and over, over, that, over that Christmas, um, I had uh, the investors um, that I'd worked with they said, oh, you know, can you do other legal work now, Tom? And I said, yeah, yeah, I can, you know. Um, so they sent me over some work. I don't know if it was charity or I don't know if they thought I was just the best at the time. I, I, I can't really. I think it was more knowing that I was capable of more. They knew that I was capable of more. So um, they gave me um, gave me a few jobs and um, the rest is really history with Gunner Cook. Um, I, I've been there seven years now. I'm still a partner. I don't do half as much legal work as I used to do. I've never had to do a day of marketing there. Um, but I've had some great jobs. You know, I've, I've been able to, you know, sort of meet people with brilliant ideas. And some of them have had no money to pay the legal bills until yeah. year five of working for them. When they're, you know, I've done every day I've spoke to them for five years and they've been absolutely broke. And then something kicks off, their business finally works and they become one of the best clients out there. But because I wasn't being paid a salary, I could gamble on it. Um, and I could say, look, you know, I won't charge you a penny, but, you know, when the business takes off, you know, we're going to have a bill to settle. And most of them have just said, yeah, absolutely fine, Tom. So I, I was able to take a, a gamble, which I couldn't take in traditional law firms because they wanted, you know, fees every month and so on. But then equally, I had some investors who had worked previously who, you know, they had lots of established businesses and things. And they weaved me into all of them. Um, I think particularly, um, you know, to, re to, to sort of realize the relationship I had with them by 2016, um, you know, they were sort of putting me into really interesting situations. Um, you know, they'd bring me down, sort of, um, essentially live with them. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd live in a hotel. They'd, they'd pay for the room for like, you know, five months at a time, six months at a time. Um, 
and I wasn't their lawyer. I was I was an advisor. Um, I'd instruct. My job was to to take their instructions, um, formulate it into what they actually want to achieve, um, develop a strategy, and then instruct their lawyers to deliver that strategy. Um, and I think that's what separated me from the the legal profession then, because I realised I had more of a you know more of a role. I was I was I was doing odd bits of legal work via Gunner Cook for them, um, but the really big deals, the hundred million pound deals, or whatever, I became the bridge between. Um, the, the the guy um, or the people or the board um, and the um, law firm uh, because the lawyers weren't capable of understanding what the investors wanted um, and it just didn't seem you know it was too much red tape at this end and the investors um, you know sort of at the the um, at the uh, law firm end there was too much red tape and at the investment end and at the commercial end uh, they just wanted to get the job done um, so my my job became you know, again, gluing the two together and coming up with really creative solutions for them um, to get the deal done. And I did that for probably about a year and a half with some of the investors. Um, that opened me to, you know, they take me out for dinner and so on. I'd meet their friends um, and their friends would say, oh, you know, God, my lawyer, he's just been terrible. And I say, you know, I, I can do it, you know. Um, and actually one of them interviewed me and I remember him cracking, cracking his neck and he said, so what makes you right for the job? Um, and I sort of said, well, well, I'll just get it done. And that was it. And he sort of said, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. You start tomorrow. And he he went on to develop housing projects, which were, I think in the end, it was upwards of 100 million that we developed, um, you know, and it was uh, uh, deprived areas as well. So it combined, um, you know, it was regenerating deprived areas. So it really um, opened my eyes to, you know, it had this socially conscious element to it, which was like the renewable yeah. energy, but, you know, um, he was doing it for the right reasons. But also, he's a very serious player, more serious than the director level, because he was there's the sums of money that he was dealing with. Um, so that was a really interesting journey, and, and that sort of carried on with my my Gunner Cook journey. Um, so, as I said, I've been with Gunner Cook now seven years, and our partner at the same time. But um, you know, I think in two, around 2017, I thought, you know, having met those people, I was kind of like, I want to be, I want to be one of those guys because I feel I've got, you know, I feel I've got the skill set now. You know, I've, I've sort of got the creativity, I've got determination, I've got the business acumen, um, it's all glued together. I've got a bit of a commercial gloss. Do I do I fit in with other lawyers? You know, am I ever going to fit in with lawyers? And I think I had to take an assessment that I could never go back to a normal law firm. Yeah. Um, I think if, if anything, I mean, Gunner Cook has grown huge now. I think there's around three, 300 lawyers now, about eight offices. Um, Sarah and Daryl have been amazing role models for me. Um, you know, to see people start a law firm and they must have been in their mid fifties when they started, you know, maybe, maybe early fifties. I wouldn't want to make any, any judgments, but um, I think they were early fifties when they started and um, you know, that it has, it has blown up to a, you know, a huge, a huge law firm now. Um, and to, you know, to meet they, they sort of, it was, it wasn't just a law firm. It was their relationship. It was to watch how they work together. You know, um, Daryl was very creative. He was very business um, Sarah was very nurturing, very passionate about what she did, did it doing it for completely the right reasons to change the legal profession, the way it glued together that, that taught me about, um, business relationships, um, much like I'd learned from the investors and working with them, um, and the directors and the relationships there. Um, and I think studying relationships between people and, and listening to the different views and, you know, sort of taking it all in, um, that's what can really develop your, your own practice in business. So, so from there, I, I went to do a load social. of other things. Um, and then obviously, you know, that, that sort of, like I said, it opened doors. I did my own, um, I think I started my own renewable energy um, company in 2018, 2019, I think. Um, 
I was uh, I was working in music management, so I'd uh, I'd taken all my music knowledge and I'd, I'd looked after a couple of bands um, from sort of two thousand and fifteen ish onwards, um, and they were doing great, you know, on the sort of front pages and things um, of sort of you know the various alternative music magazines like Kerrang and stuff, and they were doing pretty well. Um, and I think I'd, I'd you know my legal practice was going quite well, had some great clients, um, but I think I I, I wanted more, um, and I think the main thing which was out there for me was um it was my own happiness at that point um you know because i i even though i'd achieved all these great things and i felt like i had all the skill sets and it's only in hindsight that i assess it and i go yeah i had all the skill sets at that time in my life um i didn't really have anything that made me really really happy and at first i thought it was music i said you know music's what made me happy so i need to look at opportunities in music that can bring in the same income as what everything else i've done um but uh you know, I think no one really tells you about, about Tuesday nights in music. Um, and Tuesday nights in music are empty. They're dead. You know, no one goes out on a Tuesday. Um, so you stand in a room on a Tuesday thinking, this is absolutely dead. You know, and, uh, you know, th- this is miserable. You know, everyone's unhappy. Even the, you know, the promoter's unhappy. The bartender's unhappy. The manager of the venue's unhappy. The owner of the venue's unhappy. The band's unhappy. Um, the manager's unhappy. All these people are just unhappy. Um, so I thought, God, this is really depressing. This is like the times I was doing criminal law and family law way back, you know, as like paralegals and stuff. So um, it was it was pretty pretty depressing stuff. So I had um, a fair a fair amount of resources there because I'd done a lot of gunner cook work and things. Um, it was actually actually my mother. Um, you know, she we had a really frank discussion. Um, we'd actually fallen out for a, a few months, you know, because uh, she just couldn't understand where my head was at. Um, and I was saying, look, I'm really sad, mum. You know, like I'm, I'm just not, not happy anymore. Um, I'm, I'm you she was like, you were sad, Tom. So, yeah. so, what was that? A kind of constant sadness, or was, or yeah, was it, that... was, it was, it was every day. It was, I mean, I, I don't, in hindsight, I don't know if it's depression, but I, I, I didn't really, I, you know, I don't, it was, yeah, it was constant. It was every day. I'd wake up and I go, this again. You know, I'm next to the printer again. You know, I'm print, I'm working till three a.m. again, and you know, I'm fielding all these calls and things, and. You know, I mean, if I, if I, you know, I must have been doing this, this chat with you now for best part of an hour or so. Um, and, uh, you know, I think my, my phone hasn't really rung much at all, but there was a time back in 2017, 2016, where it was just relentless, you know, like call after call after call. Yeah. I, I couldn't hear myself think, you know, it was sort of like just different, different phone calls, yeah. fielding a million different phone calls and asking for, you know, asking me to do X, Y, and Z because it was either energy or it was, um, you know, sort of uh, um, the legal stuff was really sort of predominant or his music, you know, because I'd become involved in sort of the, the management stuff. Um, and we were doing merchandise at the same time. So we were selling shirts and things and printing them. Um, so there was a lot going on, but none of it made me particularly happy. Um, I think the chat with my, my mum when she sort of said, have you ever thought about sort of a, a children, uh, you know, a being becoming, well, my mum started by saying, she firstly, she said, um, when was that? When were you happy, Tom? When was your last time you were happy? And interestingly, I went back to that time when I was working with Daniel, yeah, the young the young man when I was fourteen, because of the the impact I'd had on him, and I realised that's why I'd done everything I did um, up to that point. So I'd, I'd you know I'd I'd done um, legal practice. And I'd started in you know criminal and family law and stuff, and it was to have an impact and to create you know harmony and you know mediate the disputes. Um, I'd done commercial law to sort of reach deals and sort of, you know, I guess make everyone happy at the end of it. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I just, um, 
you know, I wanted to keep my clients happy. And that's why I was continuously answering the phone and continuously working till three in the morning. Um, it was, again, it was kind of, I guess, about acceptance, but at the same time, you know, I was at a stage now where I was kind of my own being, I was doing all these different things. Um, and, and I just thought to myself, well, you know, I've got 30 years to kill here at least. So what am I going to do for the next 30 years? Am I going to, you know, the, obviously the world needs help. I felt the world needed help. I needed help because I needed something to make me smile again. Um, and I, I thought either I can go cleaning up the beaches, um, either I can, um, you know, sort of uh, protect the animals um, or I can, uh, you know, go and work overseas, you know, with sort of, uh, you know, where there's, there's uh, you know, third world countries and things. I can go to war zones. There's so many opportunities because there's so many um, nooks and crannies of, of life where, you know, there is, you know, deep seated suffering and people who need help. And that was what I realized. My, my role in life was to help people. Everything I'd done was to help people. When I was doing music, I was doing it to help people, you know, um, I was doing it so I could convey uh, find something that they could relate to and find like-minded individuals when i was doing law you know it was to help my clients and you know help my colleagues and make the business better like when i talked about with han and co you know sort of improving the office so i wasn't doing it for any other reason than you know to make it the best it could be um and i think you know where when my mother was a retired social worker at the time um and she said have you ever thought about um you know doing a children's home and i said safe to say mom I have not thought about doing that because I have, you know, I mean, but then, you know, I, I mean, my words were kind of naive at the time because she said, you know, I said, I've, I've, I've no experience working with children. She said, well, yeah, you, you do. You worked with Daniel. You know, you've just talked about the, it being the happiest time of your life. And, you know, you've got a sociology and criminology degree. Um, and uh, she said, you know, you, you can do something really different here, too, because, you um, these other these other businesses, you know, and they, they've got um, care homes where they, they look after children Um they're, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not of the standard that she wanted. Um, so that's, you know, she'd become disillusioned with social work a little bit and, and she wanted to really help kids. And then I thought, well, this combines all the ingredients because I'm able to help people. I'm able to mentor them and teach them. I'm able to run a business with, you know, sharp business acumen. I'm able to create my own model. And instead of ticking other people's boxes. And I think then it became, is it going to take off or not? And I can only describe starting Pelican, which was the, the business we, we started as a, building a car out of matchsticks and it just somehow working. Um, it just turned in the engine that day and it, oh my God, it started, you know? Um, and what we realized was there's a, you know, a, a huge plight in the UK of, of um, children who just, you know, come from impoverished backgrounds, but not only that, you know, come from gang backgrounds, um, you know, uh, come from, you know, exploited backgrounds where criminals are exploiting them. We're talking like having them, you know, case people's cars and, you know, much like Daniel, you know, um, and, uh, you know, sell drugs for them or, you know, there's uh, child sexual exploitation where it's, you know, grooming and online grooming. And obviously the Internet's yeah. made it a hell of a lot worse because, you know, if you're in a gang now as a, a young a young man, if you're, you know, 16, 14 to 16 and your kids are all carry, you know, your friends are all, are all carrying knives and so on. Um, and you're involved in, um, you know, sort of a, a gang mentality in city centre Birmingham. You're going on YouTube, you're watching videos by drill rappers um, who've probably stabbed someone at some point in their life, if, you know, if not serving a current sentence for it. You're going on Amazon, you're buying the knives, you're, you know, listening to Spotify. It's all online. It's all, you know, we had watershed when we were younger, you know, and, uh, you know, so you couldn't, you couldn't watch those things. I couldn't watch South Park before, you know, sort of 9 p.m. Now, yeah. kids can watch South Park, South Park anytime they want. Um, but they can watch far worse things. <clears throat> so the first uh, young man I met, um, I traveled to London to meet him. And I traveled, it was a huge, I went down the night before 
And um, I showed up at his house, beautiful house. Um, and I thought, this is a bit strange. His house is really nice. What, yeah. what does, why, why can't he live at home, you know? Um, this big five bedroom house and his mom was really nice and so on. And I walked in and I sat down. I said, right, you know, so is he in his room? She said, no, no, he's, he's been missing for three weeks. And I'm sorry, well, where is he? You know, did you not think to tell me prior to me traveling down from Merseyside to London um, that there was this problem and, you know, he wasn't there and he wasn't going to show up because I'd actually gone down there to meet him. Um, and she said, oh, well, I wanted you actually, I wanted you to learn what, what, what he's involved in. And she explained um, something called County Lines, which is basically the Amazon of drug dealing in the UK. It means that um, drug dealers in, in very big city centers like London, they uh, groom children from the likes of, you know, Essex, Kent and surrounding boroughs. Um, they groom them. They have them uh, pick up large quantities of drugs, take them out to rural areas, um, you know, because they're not operating in the cities. So there's not police watching them all the time. They send them up to the Lake District and all of a sudden they flood the Lake District. They flood Cumbria. They flood Scotland. They flood it with yeah. heroin, crack, cocaine, serious drugs that haven't previously been available. Create huge drug problems. Um, they get exploited massively. So they stay with drug drug users. So you're talking about a 14-year-old lad is staying with a heroin user. And they stay for weeks on end. And they come back and return home when the drugs are gone and when the money is is paid and they drop the money off with the drug dealers. Um, and the drug dealers say, um, you know, here's a tracksuit for your troubles. And as a 14-year-old as a lad, if you're getting a tracksuit for 200 quid, you're thinking, yeah, that was worth the three weeks. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You know, your mom and dad aren't giving you that because they're not going to be daft enough to give you 200 quid. Um, so, the, you know, they, they, it was a real a real eye-opener. I was like, this this lad is, you know, he's... he's and I thought, God, he's going to be a, a knife-wielding maniac when I meet him. Um, and actually, they eventually caught him and they caught him on a building site in the Isle of Wight. Um, and he was brought up. Um, now, now the, the first the first Pelican home was, um, it was a home I'd renovated. It was a house I'd renovated. Um, I'd lived there myself at one point. Yeah. So and it was a nice area and things. Um, and he arrived and, uh, you know, I, it wasn't it wasn't this, you know, knife-wielding maniac who walked through the door. It was a, a little young lad who was, he was quite tall for his age, but he was bouncy. He was like Tigger. You know, he's bouncing all over and he's going, where's my room? Where's my room? You know, and I'm sort of like, it's this one. You know, it's the one upstairs. And we only had one one child at that point. Um, and he was so excited, you know, and he, he wanted to, you know, grab everything both hands. He was super hyperactive. Um, he was just a really sweet kid, you know, who had really good morals. And you thought, you know, and had a really good heart. You know, we'd sort of, we'd talk about, you know, we'd be doing drives in our first couple of weeks where he was staying with us. Um, we'd be doing drives and we'd be talking about sort of, you know, He'd say, so what, what's love, Tom? You know, is that how I feel about the poster on my wall? And I'd be like, no, no, that's not it. You know, I'd have to educate him and, you know, sort of say, you know, it's when you meet a girl and, you know, or when you meet a, a partner, when you meet, a, you know, whichever, but you feel a certain way towards them. Um, and, you know, it's it's not the poster on your wall, basically. Um, and, uh, Just the fact that he's asking that question says so much about who he is as a human being. It does, yeah. Because if you're a really bad you know, bad, I use air quotes there for for people listening, you, you, that's not where your mind goes. You're not thinking about love. You're not thinking about those kind of really positive and, and engaging emotions and wanting to understand them, the fact that he did. He did, yeah, and he was really oh. inquisitive. And it, it kind of gave me a, an interesting, you know, with the more we got into his background, so I said, how did you end up doing this? At this point, you know, you've got at least 10 convictions for, you know, drug possession and A-class drug possession in the tens of thousands, um, something which is going to impact his entire life. 
And there he is, this this lad who just wants to go go-karting and wants to go to Alton Towers um, and wants to be a kid. Um, but I think, you know, the internet's made a lot of that possible um, you yeah. know, for people to reach reach children like this. And uh, and I said, how did it start? And he said, the police, um, they caught me. I, I skipped school one day. Um, it was the, the you know, I'd, I'd been going, um, you know, regularly. I skipped school one day. They caught me doing wheelies and they uh, on my bike. And they, they I was part of the the bike club and they, they took my bike off me. Um, and then the next day I didn't go into school because I was so annoyed and I was hanging around nearby and a, a guy came all over to me and it's literally like, you know, you, you sort of, you see these dramas where they sort of, it's similar, similar approaches, but a, a man came over to me and said, do you want to make some money? Um, and he said, yeah, you know, and his idea was to save for a new bike. All he needed was something like 300, 400 pound for his bike because yeah. the police refused to give him back. And that had led to, you know, fast forward four years, he is one of the, highest profile children in county lines in the uk he's a national phenomenon you know um to the point there were times i'd had you know um sort of scotland yard on the phone um asking about where he was what he was up to on a certain day um we're talking friends who'd i mean within his first six weeks he'd been associated with four friends who'd received well they they, they they're now they're now serving 28 years each um for for murder um and these were these were teenage lads who'd gone into a party um, and they'd killed, well, two, two people and seriously injured a third and a fourth um, with machetes, which are as long as my arm. Um, so to, to see the reality of it and see what this young man was involved in and what he was and why he was involved, you know, why he was involved, because the people that were making him do these things, they were saying, if you don't do this, now you want out, you know, it's all very well, but now you want out because you've been caught by the police. That isn't happening because if it happens, we're burning your house down. You know, we're killing your mom. Um, and to realize what he was stuck in. And he just used to say, you don't understand, Tom. You don't understand. I have to go. I have to go. You know, and he'd go missing time and time again. Um, you know, I mean, I haven't spoke to him in a couple of years now because um, eventually he did go missing again um, and he was dragged back in. Um, but I think what it um, opened my eyes to, you know, I, I, I um, gave him chance after chance and it must have cost me the best part of, Probably, I mean, even using my legal practice to get him out of sticky situations, you know, that he got himself into. You know, we're talking the best part of at least a hundred thousand pounds, you know, to to, and that's why I sort of paid in time and money to help him. Um, and there was, I, I just couldn't help him. The pull was too strong, and what they had over him was too strong. But um, as we've grown as an organisation, we have we have three homes now. Um, we have great a great team. We're a young team, so um, you know, sort of um, myself. Obviously, I'm edging towards thirty eight now. But I, our manager, um, she's she's thirty two. Um, she's one of the best in in the business, um, and she's a role model for all the kids. Um, the industry itself is very political, so we've had our battles because we do things completely different, and there's nothing like Pelican out there. Um, but we have, you know, we've changed. We changed. I think we're on our fifteenth child now, and we've we changed fifteen kids' lives. Um, we're, either we're just the calm in the storm. Or they're still keeping in touch three years later um, as 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. They're still sort of giving us a call and being like, you know, calling the home and saying, oh, you know, can I speak with Tom or, you know. And what I realized is the owners of some of these companies, they're not they're not particularly, you know, again, we talked earlier about um, law firms and the mentality of driving people and how, you know, certain people didn't know names of certain employees and stuff. And it's all, all big business. Um well, you know, as an owner of a, a children's care home company, I know every child's name, I know every staff member's name, I know every professional we work with, all the social workers. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I'd, um, I sort of, um, I guess I use all my skill sets to to mentor the, the young people. And um, 
you know, I mean, just, just last week I took one of them climbing and it was the first time she's ever been climbing. And after it, I took her to a restaurant and she's looking around the room and, you know, um, she's sort of, uh, you know, looking at the decor and it's all like, oh my God, she's never sat in a restaurant. She couldn't believe the fact that I was paying 50 pounds for a meal. 50 pounds for a meal for both of us was like unheard of, you know, because the furthest she's been is McDonald's, you know? Yeah. Um, so to see a she's young lady. These days anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it, I mean, to see a young girl who's, um, you know, to really sort of, she's, she's, uh, she's come through school where she spent most of the time, like me, hiding from her bullies. She used to hide in the toilets. Um, to go to college where she doesn't look like a, a child in care anymore. Um, she's got a fresh start. You know, to see her at a prom, to take her, to drive her to a prom and see the teachers going, who's that? Who's that? No, that's not her. No. She's like had her makeup professionally done. She's in a dress which looks like a princess. Um you know, and every 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 boy's jaw is just hitting the floor because they're like, "Oh my God, who is that girl?" And it's the same little girl who you know they they bullied and picked on, and she's turned up a prom. She's got she sat every single GCSE um, to even show up. And can you imagine being sixteen and showing up at your GCSEs without your mum and dad saying, "Come on, you can do it. Good luck, good luck." She got up every single day and went to every single exam and sat there and did them all. Um, she's gone to college. She's got a great um, great friendship circle now. Um, and she's got a first job um, and she's sitting in restaurants as a young woman um, at age 17 almost now. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, ready to embrace the rest of her life. Her life is completely different to how it was a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, and she's, uh, you know, I mean, she, she just gave us some feedback because we asked the children for feedback and she wrote some feedback. And it was like, oh, you know, we've had this time and I've had that time. And obviously she's thinking back to the times, you know, we've had to say, no, you can't do that. No, that's not allowed. No, you're going to have to, you know, you're losing sort of your PlayStation for a week because you've done this and that. And she's kicking off and so on. Well, just just two days ago, she wrote another piece of feedback to say, I thought about what I did the other week. And when I wrote that feedback and it wasn't very good. So, you know, it wasn't as it didn't really. I was in a I was in a time. I was in a place at that point. I was a bit sad. So actually weighing up the bigger picture um, here's what I think. And, you know, you guys are completely invaluable to me. And without you, I'd have never achieved what I've done so far. And to see that impact on a 17-year-old girl, well, when she's 25, 26, these are, that's stuff which, like like me with Daniel, you know, like me when I was 15 in a band with Mike, um, you know, like me meeting Paul, um, like all the experience I've had with, you know, it'll stick with me, um, you know, and um, it, sorry, it'll stick with her and just like it stuck with me. So, um so you know, so that's really that's that's the most I can hope for, really. And I, I think you know what I what I want to do in the in the future is, um, you know, I've kind of done the renewable energy stuff. I I've done sort of I did a you know a, a, my own solar park um, in Wales just to demonstrate I can develop one of the, these things from scratch for myself. Um, I sold it to a you know a, a, an overseas entity, um, which was kind of sad because you know there's an energy crisis in the UK at the moment. I did offer it to our our sort of government first, but you know. So, so be it. They didn't, they weren't interested. Um, they thought it was a bit of a bizarre idea, I guess. And, you know, um, such is the lay of the land in the UK and politics, unfortunately, at the moment. But, um, yeah. you know, I think, I think I wanted something that was very rewarding for the next 30 years and changing these kids' lives. That's my mission now, you know, to mentor them. Because, you know, when, I, when I'm 60, I don't want like the world to be a bad place. You know, I want them to be, I mean, you know, it's only 15 kids. There's a, a hell of a lot of kids. I mean, we're, you know, Pelican is, is so sort of in demand now what we do. We it's must get. It's not just 15 kids though, Tom. So it's 15 kids you've got a direct impact on. Yeah. But the indirect impact of every single one of those children, their, their friend groups that they've then yeah. developed into the, the societal impacts as you go forward 
it, it's it's an exponential piece, isn't it? And, that, and that's what I was just about to say. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it just grows and grows because they do take those morals and values, the same morals and values I gave to Daniel back when I was very young. Um, you know, I'm, I'm instilling in these kids and they're saying, well, hang on, that's not right. So one of our young lads, he had a report from school which said he'd actually stuck up for another child recently. And this is a kid who was putting his, you know, putting his, his anything he could through windows, to be honest. Um, yeah. he, he, barely la- he barely used to last a week in school before being excluded. Um and uh, and it was always Tuesdays because he hated Tuesdays. Um, I don't I don't know why, but probably Tuesdays yeah. is a bad day. It must be a really bad day because it was a bad day in music. It's also a bad day for a fourteen year old lad at school. So um, so we used to always get sent home and stuff. And recently they said, look, you know, he, he's really gone out of his way to stick up for for other kids and stuff. And that stuff I've said to him is there no need to be this. You know, you don't need to be stealing. You don't need to be you know waving knives at people and stuff. And he's he's not. You know, um, I, I just last week as well, I took him out mountain biking. Um, he's got ADHD, so um, you know he he really enjoyed it. And we're talking yeah. like you know red trails down, um, you know uh, it's a, a bike park called Antor Stiniog, which is is quite steep. You know it's a mountain. They take yeah. you up in a bus. Absolutely loved it. You know, um, like the 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 joy in his eyes um, was sort of you know he's asking when he can go again, and you know he's found his thing now. So he's like, I'm going to mountain bike, and you know that'll give his it gets his high adrenaline for him, so it tires him out. And you know you've never seen a kid he sleep, slept for about two days after he got back because he's so tired, um, which is 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 great for him. But you know, like I said, it's the it's the exponential impact it has on on their friendship groups, on their family, and on on their children when they eventually have children, yeah. they will seek to you know make them better and you know the experience and it's not to say you know some of them have come from great families some of them come from families which you know you wouldn't leave your cat with unfortunately um you know heavy drug use domestic violence criminality um you know sexual abuse things like that so you're taking extremely extremely damaged um kids and i think one thing which um you know children's homes generally get a lot of bad press in the uk um and i i don't agree with it because you know if, if you look at what pelican does day to day we go you know i i as an owner have chased our children down you know dual carriageways because they're trying to run away from a discussion where you know they might be doing something inappropriate or something like that um you know and it's been nine at night and he's saying you know i'm going i'm, I'm gonna run i'm gonna run to preston i'm gonna run to preston so and you know and there i am with you know sort of chasing after him um down a dual carriageway for the best part of two hours you know, and he, and they can run really fast. So I'm yeah. taking breathers, you know, I'm out of breath, <laughs> out of breath trying to run after him, shouting his name. And then eventually um, he gets tired and he stops and he's got the anger out of his system and we have a chat. And then I get the team to come and pick him up in a car and we all sit there and we all go sit down and have a, a discussion about it. And he goes, yeah, I know, you know, and, he, and, and, and it's experiences like that, which will shape his entire future. Um, now that, that young man actually went on to uh, work for one of our, our companies, the, the construction company that's just, um, developed a, a church building in the, in the community. Um, and um, he, he worked there for nine months. Um, before he came to me, he said, listen, you know, I got to talk about my paycheck. Um, you know, it's it's not enough anymore. And he, he was about to, he was to 17, he was about to hit 18. Um, and uh, I said, well, you know, I, I, I can't be paying you anymore. You know, based on your skill set, I can't be paying you anymore. But it was it was deliberate. It was with a view to, you know, I don't want our kids to, to work for, for me. That's just a little work experience. What yeah. I want them to do is get their own job. So actually he handed in his notice um, he said, look, you know, it was a, sort of an informal notice, you know, and said, look, I, I'm not going to work for him. Went out and got his own job and he's been there now for, he's, he's moved into his own flat now. Um, he's been there probably about six months, seven months. Um, he lives with another one of our young people, um, a former young person. Um, and he has his own job doing landscaping. So he, he works uh, doing people's gardens and he does it up and down the country, 
Um, and he's very good. And, you know, his work ethic is second to none because he's as desperate as, as I was when I was younger to, you know, to sort of succeed. Um, he's got the integrity about him where he knows that, you know, you've got to be straight with people um, and you've got to work hard and do your best. And, and that's that's what we, we've taught him, I guess. And, you know, we, again, he's, we always take qualitative feedback from the young people. We do an interview with them, um, a bit like this podcast, but I, I do it, um, you know, at, at the end of their placement um, and just say, you know, how has life changed, um, you know, and how have you changed the person? And they reflect on it and things. And, you know, I mean, now Pelican is, is at such a point we must get, and this is what people don't know. There are over 150 children at any one time every day in the UK looking for beds. Now, we're a developed country. In 2022, how are there 150 children at risk every day? Yeah. Um, and there are how many beds? I mean, we have one bed spare at the moment. Um, and that's just because we can't we can't get the staff on board. We're still recruiting as a you know sort of trying to trying to get more staff in so we can take another child. Um, but the children we do have are, are all doing great, and I'm I'm really really proud of them. Um, you know, and I'm proud of our past children and what they've gone on to do. Um, I must say, Tom, I think there's there's been a common theme throughout throughout everything that you've been kind of sharing with us today, and it's it's very much the kind of emotional um, impact of people around you. So it be it support or be it the, the kind of um, kind of collectiveness that, that communities um, have given you and, and that you've been able to give into them. Um, I think for me, that is your theme throughout everything. It so, probably is, Gavin, you're probably right. You know, when I look at um, the church project we've done, that was, you know, I didn't I didn't need to do it. Um, I saw they were going to bulldoze a 140-year-old building and turn it into three houses. And I thought, but there are 600 houses going up down the road. Why do you need yeah. to bulldoze this building? Um, and the community, they have their Christmas tree outside, outside the church every year, and they have for the last 20 years. They've had their massive Christmas tree. It's part of um, a local community within within Merseyside. You know that they they sort of um, you know very close knit community. Um, and I want to give other people, you know, sort of when we built we built a recording studio which our kids use um, and other musicians use. So it combines my interest in music. It's state of the art. There's nothing like it in in the UK certainly. Uh, there's barely anything like it in the world. Um, and on the other side, we have business uh, business premises, which are probably six or seven offices, um, very small. They're for incubator businesses. They can move from a 200 square foot office to a you know, 700, 800 square foot office. So within the building. Um, and it offers them a really sort of suave business premises where they can set the right impression to their clients. It just gives them a you know, foothold, you know, to, to start. But the, the audience for it is the local community and people from that community. I can't change the entire world. Um, I know my limit, you know, I'm, I'm, there are plenty of people out there who have done massive things, you know, Jeff Bezos doing Amazon, changed e-commerce entirely. I'm not one of those guys. Um, I accept where I am in the food chain, um, but I can do what I can do for my community um, and I can give back to it. And all the lessons I've learned on the, on the journey from the moment I made those 200 applications to different law firms, um, you know, I can give back all the lessons I've learned in the last 15 years, I can, I can give back. Um, and I can help other people and make them happier. Um, and maybe they'll each find their own path just like I did. And maybe they'll find something, you know, sincerely rewarding. Um, like what I have, I think Pelican was the, the final stop for me, I, I feel. Um, it might be that I do other things. I have other aspirations and things. But, um, you know, I think Pelican and leading that um, is the 
is the happiest I've ever been. And it's the most rewarding thing I can do. Um, and I just want to keep on giving back to, to our young people. And you can hear that as you talk to it. So the, the story about Daniel at the start, I was, I was really, really hoping that that was, that would be the thing that you came back to, to realize that was your, your kind of happy place because when you spoke about that story compared to all the other stuff you've done there was interest there there was there was um there was kind of you know um happiness in the sense of you've you've achieved something but not a whole full um uh, uh, kind of happiness a real happiness well i think yeah i think when we were going through all the different experiences when we when we got into the the legal side of things and you know what i didn't talk about was really you know a lot of the corporate deals i did and things and a lot of the sort of more mundane things what what i talked about was the regeneration projects and things and it's it's you know it, it there's a, a social consciousness yeah. and an integrity there which i don't hide you know there's there's no point hiding it i am who i am and you know i wear my heart on my sleeve um i accept who i am and you know part of me is you know my role in 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 this world and in this lifetime has, has been has always been to help others and you know and um Obviously, you know, I've, I've benefited along the way. I've become a, you know, a, a more sort of focused, disciplined person. I learned from law. My attention to detail was, you know, second to none when I was practicing. Um, but, you know, all those skill sets come together and, and they've got a really sort of focused, positive outcome, which is conveying it all to younger generations and conveying it all to communities which didn't don't have the same exposure. You know, they haven't moved to London. They haven't done, you know, dealt with the hundreds of millions and <clears throat> all the investment deals and so on. Um but, you know, show, showing them, you know, sort of like, you know, just find your path in life and, and be happy with it. Don't, you know, don't, don't try and tick other people's boxes. There's no point. That's just, you know, you're not going to succeed doing that. You, you just, you know, you're just ticking other people's boxes for an established model, which you might never fit into. You might be different. You might never fit into that box, um, you know, or that crowd. So don't be afraid to just, you know, do what makes you happy, invent your own boxes and start ticking them. You know, do I have, you know, integrity? Do I have loyalty? Do I have great friends? You know, you know, can I say that I've, you know, um, I guess, do I, do I feel like I've succeeded? You know, well, yeah, to the, to the point that, you know, um, I'm happy with myself. Um, you know, but getting there is, getting there is a real struggle. And I do sympathize and empathize with, with people who, you know, they, they do struggle, you know, you know, there's a big, Nowadays in society, it's, there's a lot of pressure on young people, on young adults yeah, um, to be something and to be something which is established and known. Well, you know, you can just as easily create your own boxes um, and start ticking them off and, um, you know, create your own model. Um, and if you can do that, then... You know, I think I think you know you can you can reach happiness. You know, because you're doing your own your own thing. You're not striving for acceptance and things, which is something like I said. You know, I I spent a lot a lot of my younger years. You know, I felt like I was you know trying to get into an established model um, by doing everything I've done, which is you know music, legal work, um, you know, obviously renewable energy, e-commerce, music management. Now the recording studio, the offices. Um, you know, looking after the kids. Um, it's you know you don't find many people who are across all those sectors but um what I, what I can say is you know you know it's 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 sort of formed a formed a, an overall picture um and um something where I've been able to make myself happy doing it and I've learned a lot and so on and I haven't I, you know it's it's not an existing model you know don't find people who are doing you know making alternative extreme music or whichever at the same time as practicing law at the same time as mentoring children 
Um, but it makes me happy. And that's that's what I'd I'd say to anyone who's looking for, you know, that that level of, of sort of happiness or that level of, you know, don't be worried about what other people think about you. You know, don't be worried about, you know, trying to be accepted by other people. Um, just focus on you. You do you, you know. And if and if people have got a problem with that, you know, they're not for you. You know, let them do them. Um, you do you, they do them. Um, but you you trying to please them, that's that's not the the way to make yourself happy because you're not focused on yourself, then you're focusing on them. Um, and one of the biggest things in society nowadays, which causes, you know, mental health problems and depression and, you know, sort of a lot of um, a lot of struggle is is by people um, being too scared to do their walk, their own path being. And, you know, and it's you know, it's a it's a very real fear. You know, you can walk your own path. You can make two steps and you can fall over, um, but you fall over. And part of it is dusting yourself off and, and getting back up and continuing, you know, and just just sort of fall down again, get back up, dust yourself up continue you know and, and it's just a determination and a focus which if if you've got to understand that if you want to if you want to walk your own path it's not going to be easy because it's not established it's like walking along an a road versus walking along a, a, a z road up a mountain you know one's one's a lot harder than the other because there is no established model but when you reach the top you'll never be prouder of yourself and you'll never be more content with yourself and you'll never be happier um and and that's what a lot of people strive for i think you know but it's just about um you know, taking, taking that walk, you know? You're a very, a very inspiring guy, Tom. Um, just thinking um, about the kind of advice you've, that you've given there, which, which I think rings extremely true. With, is that the same that you'd give back to your, your younger self um, kind of looking back or? Being or honest you... with you, Gavin. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is, that is what I'd say. I'd say, you know, don't, don't try and, you know, you don't need to be accepted. I mean, fortunately, there were people like I talked about David, for example, the, the yeah. kid who would spend hours in the park trying to teach me to take free kicks and penalties just so I didn't embarrass myself and so on. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, what was I what was I to be embarrassed about? I was just no good at football. You know, everyone yeah. is good at their own thing. I'm still no good at football. You know, but um I think what I learned from that is, you know, there are people out there who are very good people. Not everyone in that crowd of people where you're trying to be accepted by them. Not everyone's bad. Um, some, a lot of them want to to help you. Um, you know, don't be, don't be sort of afraid. Um, and I think I spent a long time as a young person, you know, afraid, you know, scared mm. to take, to take bold, you know, to take risks and, you know, um, seeing people who are better at things than me. And I just couldn't do them. Like I said, playing guitar and things, you can do your own thing. You just need the determination to do it. Um, and you need the skill set to do it. And developing that skill set is what I tell each and every young person that passes through the door of Pelican. I said, find your thing. You are be you, you can be the best at this. You know, you might not be the best at X, Y, and Z, but you're the best at this. So, you know, um, and some of them find incredible talents. You know, um, we have a young man at the moment who's just about to, to start um, music lessons. He's incredibly musically talented, um, you know, and incredibly creative when it comes to drama and acting and doing little sketches on TikTok and things. And um, he's really talented. So, you know, that, that you can see that raw talent. It's just about him having the confidence in himself to walk away from the crowd that he's been part of and do something entirely different, you know, yeah. um, and, but something he's good at and something which is um, promising and positive for him. Um, so I, I'd give that same advice to a younger me. Um, you know, if, if I could turn back the clock, the best part of 30 years, um, 25 years, um, then I'd, I'd be saying that to my, my younger self, um, you know, don't worry about what everyone else thinks, um, you know, you do you. And, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine a few years ago, she posts it regularly. She reposts it for me. Um, 
but she's it's a it's a it's a, a diagram. Um, I've actually seen her, I think, on um, Friday. She's she's coming to the the opening part of the studio, and yeah. we've been friends since we're about fifteen. And she posts this image on my on my social media. Um, most occasionally, most most years, she'll post it, um, and it basically just shows um, a group of people um, sort of watching another person who's um, floating away on a balloon, and it basically just says, you know, Tom doesn't care about what anyone thinks, um, you know, and 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 that's that's it, you know, it's a case of you know. Just she recognized very early on um, that, you know, that was that was how I felt. You know, that's how I should feel. Um, I did it. I've always done it. I've always sort of, you know, followed my own path. I just didn't have the determination to really run the marathon. Um, I think one, you know, as a, as a 37 year old, I now have the determination to run the marathon every time. Um, it was a very uphill struggle to get there. Um, but, you know, um, I hope I hope it can keep on going. Definitely. And then just to finish off, um, so I'd like to ask this to all my guests. In terms of, and we'll just pretend that I am the greatest ever chef to exist, um, which is obviously entirely true. Um, but first of all, dinner party-wise, what would you have to eat? And then um, there's four spare seats there. Who are you going to have along, living or dead? So I think, I mean, this is an interesting one because most people are going to pick, you know, famous people, yeah. um, you know, big idea people who've been on the, you know, face of magazines and things. I mean, there are people I admire a great deal, but my most important people are my family and some of my clients um, that I've met along the way and their knowledge base. Um, you know, they're, they're not people you see on the front of magazines, <clears throat> but they're people I admire a great deal. So I definitely have a selection of, of um, you know, maybe one or two of those people. Um, and I think I'd, I'd probably have some big idea people. Um, but I think, you know, I think I'd probably have at that table, I'd have someone who doesn't have, you know, they're not on the front pages of magazines. They're not a client of mine. They're someone who can learn because watching them learn, like I learned, that's what's important, you know? And, and, and obviously, you know, you get these opportunities like that, like I had, you know, when I, I was invited to dinner with some of these clients and they say, you know, they'd sort of offer me a piece of food off their, their sort of um, their sharing platter. And I'm there, you know, my hands are shaking because I'm trying to use chopsticks and trying to grab at the, the bit of food. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to embarrass myself. You know, over time, I want them to look around that table and see that no one is judging them. Uh, they don't have to be embarrassed about anything. Um, and for them just to listen and learn and enjoy the enjoy the the, the, the meal, really. And, you know, as for, as for my, um, my cuisine, I think I'd probably just pick something quite humble really you know I, I go to i go out for meals all the time i always sort of get you know pizza or fish and chips or yeah. you know, calamari um you know i have a, I have a, i'm a very i'm a creature of habit i guess um so far as far as food so nothing nothing exotic or anything i'm sure these people will you know out there that'll reel off you know michelin starred meals and stuff i'm I, you know i do i do like a nice meal but um you know i think for the purposes of making that person at the table feel comfortable um you try and keep it you know They've, they've got to be able to focus on what's going on at the table because that's the opportunity they get. So if you're if you're sort of bringing you know guests to a table, you don't want it to be I I, I you know not that that um, not that meal. Um, if it's a different meal, maybe we're going to order everything under the sun. Um, but for that meal, and if I get to choose my guests, and one of them there or two of them there, um, they're going to be people who have their whole lives ahead of them. And I actually want them to be focused not on the food, but on the conversation and the environment. Um, and what people are talking about, because that's that's why I learned listening. You need to be able to listen. That's that's one of the the, the key lessons I learned. 
Amazing. That's been one of my favorite ever conversations, Tom. So thank you. Thanks, um, so it's been it, you know? really, really good. Um, interesting to talk about, you know. So yeah, good. Never really, never really talked about that in its entirety, you know, everything in its entirety. So yeah, it's been yeah. really good. Amazing. So I always send my guests away with just wishing you love, um, compassion and kindness. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Tom. Thanks, Kevin. And uh, yeah, much appreciated. Well, thank you, friends. That's all we've got time for today. I'm sure you have enjoyed uh, today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you rate uh, the episode and the show's five stars on whatever platform you might be listening on. And of course, please share your own stories and your own um, kind of th- thoughts and feelings of the episodes in the reviews. You can also find me um, on I am Gavin Clark, and that's Clark with an E, over on Instagram. And you can search for The Safe Place uh, on there too. It's a safe place podcast. But for now, I'll send you away with love, kindness, and compassion. Speak soon. <laughs>